Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Good morning. How are you doing? It's great to see uh, what Amory's doing uh, with our kids right now. Uh, yeah. But not only that, but it's kind of awesome to see uh, really Lakewood as an entire staff. Just uh, all of us are very passionate about what we do. And to see uh, just that passion at work and the things that are coming from it. Uh, but one of the things that we really uh, hold valuable is the foundational truth. Uh, the idea of saying this is what makes up our faith. This is who we are. Uh, this is our foundation. And uh, that's kind of been the point of this entire series that we're going through right now. We're in week three of our series, Who You Are. And what we started with with week one was we said we wanted to point out the foundational truth of who we are in Jesus, who Jesus says we are. We wanted to use this series to say two things, who we are, but then we also wanted to take it a step further and we wanted to say what we're supposed to do about it. So who we are, okay, we know who we are in Jesus, so now what do we do with that? And so that's what the following weeks have been. We've been tackling issues that uh, Jesus gives pretty clear commands on. We've been talking about things that Jesus talks about a lot. Last week, we talked about worry. And I can now commit, or, uh, <laughs> confess to you that I was a little worried about that sermon. <laughs> Getting up and talking about something that you struggle with really a lot is difficult to do. But we've been seeing how God has called us to this action that comes from our faith. So it's not just a definition or an identity of who we are, but it's also a call to step from that identity in our actions. And so we're going to start with today with the reminder of who we are. So I'm going to ask that, just like last week, we take a moment and we repeat these things because there's power in declaration. And so as we go through these things, don't just read them. Declare them. You are these things. Let's dive into it together. The first one is this. I am the workmanship of God. Go ahead. I am the workmanship of God. Ephesians 2.10, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I am made in God's image. I am made in God's image. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I am known by God. I am known by God. Psalms 139, for you informed me, or you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. God knows us. I am forgiven. Say it with some oomph. I am forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I am a new creation. I am a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I am chosen. First Peter 2, 9, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I am a child of God. Absolutely. Romans 8, 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
I am loved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? You are these things. Not because you're really neat people. Not because you put in the work. You are these things because God says you are these things. You're not working towards them You are them. And it's from this identity that we're called to step into action. And we have to get that order correctly. Because when we try to act in certain ways in order to obtain our identity, or to obtain who we are in Christ, we see the instructions of God as oppression or as obligations of the faith. Not only that, but we trust or we treat our understanding with God as if it's something that's fluid, as if it's something that can change by our actions, as if it's something that we can make God love us more or less by how devoted or not devoted we are to him. But you need to understand that our standing with Christ is solid. It's on a firm foundation. It doesn't move because Jesus doesn't change. His love for us doesn't diminish. It doesn't grow. It is constant. So when we act from our identity that's been given to us, we see the instruction of God as privileges that lead to a good life on this earth. Not an easy life, but a good life on this earth and a great life in the eternal. And so knowing the identity that God has placed on us as his beloved children, we're now going to open the word. And we're going to ask God, what would you have us do with that? We're going to ask God what a life looks like when it's lived as an outpouring from our identity with Christ. And so before we go forward, can we just stop for a second? And let's, let's just spend some time thanking God for the identity that he has given us. Let's spend some time thanking God for who he has called us. Let's do that together right now. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you you love us so well. And you've given us such an incredible identity. We don't deserve it. We can't live up to it. But it's who we are anyway. God, thank you for that. God, thank you for not making it about our efforts. Thank you for not making it something that we earn. God, we couldn't do that. And you stepped in and did it for us. God, thank you. God, I ask that we would hear your word today as your children and that from your identity that you've given to us, we would step and act. Holy Spirit, please speak through me, God. Please take these words and use them, Father. I ask that you would implant them into the hearts of your people and that you would give us the humility to receive them and the courage to enact them. We love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so show of hands. And even if you're watching online, I honor system, put your hands up if it's true. How many of you at some point in your life have said, man, I wish I had a little more money? How many of you have said it recently? Anybody said it today? Ah, we got some, all right. Well, all right, then we're, we're in good company. How many of you in your lifetime have ever dreamed what you would do if you won the lottery? Yeah? 
I'll be honest, that one's hit me a lot sometimes. I'm like, man, I, I get, finish getting my pilot's license, I'd buy a plane, all these different things. No debt, it'd be great, you know. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, and I do some good stuff around the world, too. Uh, but that idea, you know, where we go through and we're just like this, what would I do if all of a sudden hundreds of millions of dollars are just given to me? And we start to make this plan. Um, it was funny, whenever uh, we lived in Joplin, we heard the story of this couple. They won $1.6 million playing a slot machine at a casino. $1.6 million. And at that time, money market accounts were doing pretty well. And so we, we, we calculated it out. Had they put it into a money market account, they would have every eight days in interest gotten $1,000. That's $45,625 a year. Thank you, calculators. I'm just that good. No. Um, so $45,000 a year in interest. That's what this couple would have made. But within a year of that winning, they were bankrupt. And we look at that. They spent it on trying to hit it again big. They went to Vegas. They chartered flights. They bought a nice house. They bought an incredible car. They paid off all this stuff. And then within a year, they were just worse off than they were before they won. And we look at that and we say, what a shame. I could have handled that better. And sometimes I say, God, please give me a chance to handle that better. <laughs> God, give me the burden of wealth. <laughs> In 2015, UBS did a survey of investors worth over a million dollars. And they asked about their feelings of their own financial security. And the most common response that these investors gave was that they really, to, to really feel financially secure, they would need a little more money. And it's weird hearing someone that's worth multiple millions of dollars saying that they need more money to be financially secure, but it shows an underlining theme of our culture. Or perhaps our condition as humans. Maybe this isn't just our culture. Maybe this is just humanity. The theme is the endless pursuit of more. We get more and then our way of living rises up, so we need more, and it just keeps going and going and going, and we're pursuing more because we believe at some point we're going to get to that part, that place where we finally arrive at a place where we feel both happy and secure at the same time. The crazy part for that for me, as I was kind of researching some of this stuff this week, was this, that in a worldwide perspective, we're already there. <laughs> If you own a car, you're in the top 15% of wealth on this planet. 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. 40% lives on less than $250, which is less than it costs to get a latte made. We live in a place where we can regularly say things like, I don't feel like cooking for myself, so I'm just going to pay someone else to do it for me. And Lord help them if it takes more than seven minutes. That is indescribable wealth. There was a guy, um, he was a village leader in a tribe in the Amazon, a Christian man. He, uh, missionaries had come in, and he, his whole village had given their lives to Jesus. But he came to visit his family in the United States, and they drive up to like a Wendy's. And he was like, what are we doing? We're driving up to a window, and we told them what we wanted. And then they just gave us food out of this window. We didn't have to kill anything. They just gave us this food. And here's the craziest part. The guy that he was with, he gave them a piece of plastic. And then they gave it back. 
And so he's went back and he tried to tell the people in his tribe, it's ridiculous what they have there. They've got so much food there. They throw away more than we could eat in a year and just going through all these different things. And you may be struggling financially, and I'm not trying to downplay that today. But having a roof over your head at night and access to transportation is enough to place you at the top of the pile when it comes to the wealth of this world. And so I'm not trying to make you feel bad about the wealth that you have, about the amount of money that you do or don't have. But when it comes to something as enticing, as empowering, as misleading, and as corruptive as money, we need to strive as ardently as we can to see it from the perspective of God. We need to get this right. Jesus talks so much about the importance of having a correct perspective when it comes to money, that to ignore what he says on this issue would be to ignore a significant portion of the gospel. So if we can, we're going to take the next few minutes and we're going to read what Jesus says about money. And we're going to attempt to realign our perspectives to match his. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 12. Verse 15, take care and be on your guard. We're going to start, stop right there just for a second. Anytime someone starts a sentence with two warnings, you should perk up a little bit. (laughs) Jesus starts the sentence with, take care, be on your guard. Two warnings. Then he says this, guard against all covetousness, which is greed, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. He says you're more than your stuff. Your stuff doesn't make up your life or who you are. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, it says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus shows in these first two passages that regardless of what you think about your current financial situation, real wealth has very little to do with your assets, your investments, or your account balance. Right out of the gate, we see that Jesus views wealth very differently than our world does, than we often do, than I often do. Does that mean that it's wrong to have wealth and possessions? Absolutely not. It's not wrong to have money. God used people that had money throughout the Bible. Look at how many people that were incredibly wealthy that God used in Scripture. It's not wrong to have money, but what Jesus addresses here is not wealth, but the attitude with which we approach wealth. Jesus is talking about the things that we choose to treasure. And what he says is, be very careful what you choose to treasure. It's not bad to have money. It's bad to treasure it. And what he says is, be careful to lay your treasures in heaven where they can't be destroyed. And the stuff that's here that gets stolen, that gets destroyed, that when the stock market does whatever it does and things go south, that's the stuff that you use as a tool, not a treasure. And when we take money and we make it the treasure, the one thing, the source of our security, what we really begin to do is we begin to worship money. And that may sound a little harsh. You may sit there and say, listen, I don't, I'm not like Scrooge McDuck in it where I'm putting a big pile and swimming in it and bowing to it and all that other stuff. I'm not doing that. 
So I'm not really worshiping money, but anything, when anything becomes, or anything other than Christ becomes our security, when anything other than Christ becomes the thing that we put our hopes on, what scripture tells us is that is idolatry, which means to worship something that's not God. And it is so difficult to live in this culture where so many things are worshiped without becoming idol worshipers ourselves. But the good news is that we're not alone. Once again, the Israelites come in and show us what it means to screw up in this way. Because they too struggled and failed in this respect. In Exodus 32, we're going to find the Israelites on the base of Mount Sinai. They've already gone away from Egypt. They've seen God do a bunch of stuff. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai, and he's been up there a little long. And so what do they do? They get antsy. So we're going to pick it up in Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that, your ears, or <clears throat> that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Israelites have witnessed the power of God. They saw the plagues. They experienced the plagues. They saw it all happen and unfold right before them. Not only did they witness the plagues of God, but whenever they left Egypt and they were standing on the banks of the Red Sea, they saw God come down in a pillar of fire to separate the Israelites from the Egyptians. They saw that. But they didn't just see that. Then all of a sudden, God parts the Red Sea. Two walls of water, and he has them walk through the Red Sea on dry land. They saw all of this. And then Moses spends a little too much time on the mountain, and they say, hey, let's bow down to a cow. So they make a cow out of their own jewelry, and then they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And we sit there and we say, that is the most ridiculous story in the world. But how often do we look at our jobs and say, this is the thing that's providing for my life? How often do we look at all these different things that we hold to be our security and say, this is what's giving us security and what's leading us and making sure that we can go to sleep at night in a comfortable place? Hmm. Here's the truth. The Israelites lived for hundreds of years in a land surrounded by other gods. And in that time, they adopted the idol worship that was common to the Egyptians. And the calf that they were worshiping was not, they weren't really worshiping the calf, they were worshiping what it represented. It represented one of the Egyptian gods that they had spent the last several hundred years worshiping right alongside with the Egyptians. And so in a moment of struggle and insecurity, they, instead of leaning on the God who had shown his provision, they leaned instead back on what had brought them a semblance of perceived security in their past. Now, I enjoy a good steak. I'll be honest, my taste isn't all the way back yet, so texture's a thing, and steak's not my favorite at the moment. But I could eat a hamburger with the best of them. But you're never going to see me bowing down to the thing and saying, this is what has led me out of Egypt. 
I've never even been to Egypt. But I tell you what I'm tempted to do in my heart, though. Sometimes I'm tempted to bow down to comfort and security, to possessions. Man, I like things. I like gadgets. And I tend to bow down to all the other things that money can buy, and I tend to call the pursuits of this world treasures. And in a world that's not my home, I spend an awful lot of time to make it pretty darn homey. And Jesus knows that this is something that I struggle with. Jesus knows that this is something that his people will struggle with. And he spoke so much about it because he knew that we would struggle with this. And he tells us that although we may be tempted to serve money, that we will not be able to serve him while making money or the things that money can buy are primary goals. He says we can't serve him while treasuring possessions, while treasuring comfort, while treasuring money. And we're surrounded by a culture that says the exact opposite of that. So the first point of the day is this, that living in a culture of idolatry, we have to be intentional about not becoming idol worshipers. The Israelites couldn't do it. And truth be told, so many times, neither can we. We have to be intentional about not worshiping the things that the world worships because we're called to something better. Remember when I was first married, I had some friends that said, Paul, you don't hang out with us as much anymore. And I was like, man, I got a, I got a beautiful wife. I found something better. <laughs> We're not called to the pursuits of this world because we found something better. And so often, this is the cancer that we don't know we have. There's a really good example of this in the life of Jesus. A man approaches him who uh, thought he was doing really well, who was known for doing really well. But Jesus points out that there is a sickness in him that is all but fatal. It's in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And I love this. <laughs> Jesus tells him all of these things, and you can kind of just see the guy's chest puffing up. He's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> can't wait to say this next line. Because then the guy comes back and he says, all of these things I've kept from my youth. I've always done this, Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is approached by this guy who thought he had his stuff together. At this point, too, to be wealthy, it happens in our culture now, too. If you have money, you're looked on with a certain level of respect. Like, you have done well for yourself. And this guy was known as a guy who had done well for himself. And then Jesus says, that, well, Jesus points out the true affection of the young man's heart. The guy asks, what should I do? And Jesus responds, and you can almost see this guy deflate. As he hears these things, Jesus shows what he lacks, and he shows that his wealth, which he had so long seen as a blessing, was actually a hindrance 
to his spirit. Because he loved his money more than he loved God. But until that moment, he didn't know it. Oh, I pray that we know that God will convict us of the things that we put in front of him and we know where our sicknesses lie because in God we have a healing. But I'm also so thankful that my standing with God doesn't rely on that. Because living where we live and the way we live, we are blessed by God, but it really comes at a price because we're so well taken care of that there is very little in as far as daily needs that we really rely on God for. We want him to take over when there are tragedies, when there are illnesses, and things that we feel are beyond us. But for the day-to-day, we really just rely on ourselves. And our faith is in our own provision. And so we build these lives relying on our own work and merit. Now, I know that we're in, we're, we're, we've been about a year in this whole COVID thing that's been happening. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. Um, But one of the things that happened in our time uh, living in quarantine and socially distancing was a wonderful, beautiful person in our lives showed up at our door with a warm sourdough loaf of bread. And I love sourdough. But not only that, did she give us this loaf of bread, she also gave us a starter of sourdough uh, from the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. It had been passed on for that long, which that may sound gross to you, but it's it's okay. Um, But anyway, and I was so thrilled. It was my favorite thing that happened that week. Not only that, but every day I'd come home, I'd smell bread. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. This is before I lost my sense of smell. Um, This is the best thing ever. But then fast forward a little bit, and one day I come home, and I'm noticing that we have so much bread in our house. I'm not kidding. I came home, and there were four loaves on the counter and one in the oven, and that's not me telling you that we're expecting another child. That's just saying we got a lot of bread in our house. And so whenever I pray the Lord's Prayer and I say, give us this day our daily bread, I'm honestly like, God, I have too much bread. But the truth is this, that when I pray, give us our daily bread, I cannot understand what I'm saying to God in that moment. Most of us have rarely experienced a point where we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and we're actually counting on God to feed us today. In fact, most of us would be upset if God only provided enough for us right now. We want to rely on God for the big things, but we're perfectly fine relying on ourselves for the daily stuff. But Jesus doesn't mince words here. He says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter heaven. Do you get what Jesus says right there? What Jesus says is it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. He says it. Most days I can't get a piece of thread through a needle, much less a camel. And even if I could, the camel wouldn't be happy on the other side. But Jesus says that it's easier for that to happen than for you to go to heaven. He says it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. And as the top 15% of wealthiest people in the world, we are rich. He's talking about us. And the more I think about it, the more I come to the same conclusions that the disciples came to. In Luke 18, 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Because whenever I read that and I feel like, Jesus just said I can't go to heaven. 
And then the disciples said, Jesus, who can, who can possibly be saved under that? And Jesus' very next words in 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I love it. Money will never be our salvation. It promises that which we long for the most, but also that which it cannot deliver. Our salvation is through Jesus Christ. And he makes our salvation, which is impossible, he makes it possible. What we cannot do for ourselves, he did on our behalf. We serve a God who makes impossible things possible. That really deserves an amen somewhere in this room. Thank you. (laughs) And he wants our best, so we need to be incredibly cautious and intentional with how we approach our treasures. Because God knows our hearts. God knows our tendencies. He knows that our affections tend to shift and our priorities tend to go to the wrong things. We have a Savior who knows us, a Savior who wants our best. He has not set us up to fail. In fact, He has already won the battle. And He hasn't left us empty-handed either. He hasn't pointed out this great temptation. He hasn't said that if you fall to this temptation, you're going to struggle to get to heaven. He hasn't done all this stuff. He hasn't told us to be intentional with our wealth without giving us a tool to help us be intentional that we don't become idol worshipers. God created a tool specifically designed to help us realign our hearts to his. And here's what the tool is. It's the offering. It's hard to preach about the offering. There's so many people in this world right now under the name of Jesus that ask for money for the wrong motives and the wrong purposes. But it's a gift that God has given us. Where we give our money to God. And you may be sitting there saying, God really wants my money? And the answer to that question is no, he doesn't. He has the whole cattle on a thousand hills thing. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. He's trying to free us. And that's why the offering is not a gift that we give to God. It's actually a gift that God gave to us. We don't have a give and take relationship with God. We have a he gives and we receive relationship with God. And knowing us, he tells us to give up that which so easily ensnares our hearts. That's why we have the offering. It's us saying that we trust in God more than our own provision and that we desperately want to let go of the idols that are so easily created in our hearts. It has very little to do with the church budget. And so that's why I'd like to tell you today three things that the offering really does for the Christian. First is this, the offering is an acknowledgement of who God is. Matthew 6, 25 through 26 says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Sound familiar? What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? 
When we give our finances to God, we acknowledge that he's the real provider, that whenever God says that he will provide for us like he provides for birds, we believe that. And so we trust him to be the provider for all that we need, that he is the one who takes care of us and that we trust in him more than we trust in our own efforts. In other words, we treat God like he's God, like he is our father, and we trust him when he says that he is a provider. The offering is an acknowledgement of who God is and that we believe that. The second thing it does is that the offering reaffirms our commitment to God. Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. So he sat down opposite the treasurer and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came in and put, two, or put in two small copper coins which make up a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. You know, the word tithe gives us the idea that God is asking us to give him 10%, uh, which is interesting because if you actually look at the Old Testament uh, scriptures on tithing, it actually gets closer to 20% by the end of it. But we have this idea in our head that like 20% is our thing. Uh, but looking at Jesus, or 10% is our thing, but looking at Jesus' approach to money in scripture gives us an understanding that he's not asking for a specific number, but rather for us to give to the point that we are reliant on him to be our provision. In other words, to give until it hurts. To give until we have, he has to come through or we're in deep. Because we're trying to let go of the power that this has over us. And it reaffirms that we are committed to what God is doing. And I know this is difficult. But Jesus doesn't call us to the tame and secure life. And one of the ways that we commit to the life that Jesus has called us to is in the offering, where we let go of our control and sign on for his purpose and path. The next thing the offering does is it is an intentional realignment of our hearts. One of the largest critiques that Jesus had of the Pharisees was not, that they're, not in their actions, but in the heart and motive behind their actions. Luke 11.42 says it this way, But woe to you Pharisees! You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you have ought, to, ought to have done without neglecting the others. Or in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as you hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus calls us to have hearts of giving and generosity. And I'm not saying that you all need to empty your bank accounts into the offering box today. That's not the point. But rather, that we're supposed to be intentional with our money and our possessions. And that we would then become and remain a people that are known by our generosity. That treat our money as a tool, not a pursuit, not as a goal. That we give to organizations that are doing great work for the kingdom that we push the kingdom into the world, organizations that are local, like share blessings in young life, but there's also, and then the local church, which reaches locally and across the globe in missions that, that reach the entire world. 
Because when we give, we let go and align our hearts behind the heart of God and we begin to see our money not as sections that go here or there, but as a complete tool for serving, loving, and helping people in the name of God. But i got to give the disclaimer now. This is not about raising our offerings at Lakewood. Uh, we believe that God is the provider we want to do all the ministry that God wants to do with the church, and we believe that he will bring in the resources to do those things. Don't get me wrong, though. I want to see the offerings at Lakewood go up. But not because I want to raise, not because we want job security, or not because we want to buy a bunch of brand new stuff for the church. Really, I want to see the offerings of Lakewood go up because it would mean that as a church, we're growing in our devotion and our trust of God meaning that we are actually buying into this, that we are called to step out from the idolatry and in to following his plan and his path for us. That as a church, we're letting go of our own provision in favor of trusting the Lord's provision. And then I want to see what God does with those funds throughout his kingdom across the world, what God does through the people that are willing to trust him on that level. Because as a church, we've decided to trust in what he wants done with Lakewood. And if history is any indication, once the people of God choose to trust him, that's when things get on fire and exponential spiritual growth and change happen. That's when we turn around and look back a year later and we said, I had no idea what God was going to do with all this, but I'm so excited that I'm a part of it. Our goal should be to live our lives in a way that when we step into the gates of heaven, we don't enter as aliens that have our own ideas and customs but as sons or daughters who have finally come home to our family. I want what I treasure, what you treasure, to match what is treasured in the kingdom of heaven. To have a thing that says, for me, if I'm going to live, it's going to be for Jesus, and if I'm going to die, it's nothing but gain. And my prayer is that Lakewood would become a church where we are defined by the identity that has been given to us by Jesus and we actively and intentionally pursue a path that teaches and changes us to look more like citizens of the kingdom of heaven than citizens of this world. I know on this issue, there are so many walls that we're building up in our hearts and in our minds. And I'll be li- I'd be lying to you if I told you that I am not standing on this stage with that same struggle in me. I love being comfortable. But I also know this, that whenever we give up the things that we perceive to be goals and we actually embrace the things that Jesus says are the real goals, what we actually find is that we discover what real treasure looks like. And it makes gold look like pavement. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, I know there's so much work that we need to do on these things, but at the same time, God, I'm so thankful that you are willing to do the work with us, that you are willing to work in us and bring us into our identity as new creations. Father, if I said anything today that is not true, I ask that you would help people to forget it. But Father, if I have spoken your word and you have communicated your word, God, I ask that we would not be able to put this down. That it would gnaw at us and that we would want so much to treasure what you treasure, God, that you would teach us what is valuable. 
and help us to put down the things that aren't. God, please help me in that. God, thank you so much for my church family. Thank you so much that we get to do life together. And Father, I ask that you would bring out that vision. God, I really, I ask that in a year we would be able to look back and just be amazed at what you've done. God, please help us to break these chains. We love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.